Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. We begin Parshas Vayetze. We continue our incredible story that has been unfolding before our very eyes. As always, we'll uh, do a brief overview of the Parsha. And then I want to analyze today really a pretty straightforward text. Nothing uh, that exciting, but because I want to share with you an incredible insight of the Rambam. Normally we don't talk about the Rambam's insight on Chumash per se, but a halacha uh, of the Rambam in Hilchos Schirus that explains a part of our text this morning is incredible. Hilchos Well, we'll get to it. So let's uh, do an overview of the Parsha first. Uh, Parsha's Vayetze. Last week's Parsha, we last left off with Yaakov running. Yaakov fleeing from Esav, knowing that his brother was going to uh, kill him. And uh, understanding... Uh, the, the horrible realization that Yitzchak confronted by Gedola, the first rites, the fear wasn't just that he had realized that he had given the bracha to someone whom he hadn't intended, but the Harada, this incredible trembling, this fear was his whole life he had miscalculated. He was invested in Esau. He thought Esau was going to be the uh, ambassador of his legacy. So imagine the realization that you had, you had you'd bet on the wrong horse. Not the wrong horse, the wrong child. Your whole legacy, everything. And you felt the pressure, you felt the burden of single-handedly transmitting all of your father's legacy. And it was going to fail. You had done the wrong, you had made the wrong bet. So that's Yitzchak Harad Gedola, this unbelievable sense of uh, trembling. So I found it fascinating at the end of last week's Parsha that when Yaakov comes to Yitzchak before he runs away to his uncle's house, Yitzchak never says boo to him about what, what happened back there. When you dressed up and you stole and you deceived and you lot, Tatala, what happened? What was that? He doesn't say boo, he doesn't say anything. What does he do? He gives him another bracha. He gives him another bracha. By, uh, where's the Pasuk? He calls him, he blesses him, he tells him, don't marry any of those lousy girls. Make sure you marry in the family, that she has a good pedigree. And he sends her, And that's it. What? What? Yitzchak doesn't confront him and say, What was that? You and your mother schemed against me? What was that? Nothing. Okay, so it was last week's parsha. I don't want to get into it too in depth. So Molly suggests, and, and definitely there's truth to it, that Yitzchak we do not see as the great communicator. You know, I, I also noticed that I'm giving you all these things on last week's parsha. So I also noticed last week's parsha when he has the confrontation with Avimelech, and Avimelech expels him. The Torah doesn't record one word of Yitzchak. Avimelech says, "What's the deal? I heard you being mitzachik with your wife. How could you do this to me? You risked our lives. It's time for you to go." Torah doesn't record one word of reaction by Yitzchak. Yitzchak is silent. As we said last week, he has the Jewish husband's part. He doesn't have a speaking part. He doesn't speak, he doesn't speak much. So maybe it's a failure to communicate. Maybe it's something much more though. Maybe it's something much more. Maybe he had now realized, he had come around to understand that indeed Yaakov was the chosen one. So rather than reflect with criticism of Yaakov he embraces what Yaakov did he understands that Yaakov is the chosen one and he moves and he moves forward someone quoted to me last week an insight of, uh, of Rav Zweig Rav Zweig in Miami says that maybe Yitzchak bet on Esav because he thought you know this is a crazy world my father had a very radical ideology and this world's not running to embrace it and we have a lot of enemies as the founders of the Jewish people this will not be easy so a little Yaakov 
who's meek and passive and a yeshiva bacher and sits in the Dalit Kosli Beis Medrash, he's pale, he's, he can't possibly navigate the characters of this world. So Esav, surely he's spiritually inferior. But what choice do I have? Undoubtedly he has the strength and the conniving and the, he'll be able to do it. So that's why Yitzchak had bet on, on Esav. What happens? When Yaakov pulls off getting the bracha, what does Yitzchak realize? Yaakov has it in him. Yaakov has it in him. No, this seemingly passive, pure yeshiva bachar, put him in the Hezder unit, put him in the arm, he has it in him. And he proves it, Yaakov proves it to his father when he shows the ability to do whatever is necessary to get the bracha, to protect the legacy, the inheritance, the spiritual inheritance. And then Yitzchak is so impressed that maybe that's why he doesn't confront him later because he accepts the fact that Yaakov is the chosen one. He sends him off to his uncle Lavan's house. Anyway, all that's last week's Pasha. This week's Pasha. So Yitzchak, of course, is, Yaakov rather is fleeing. He makes a pit stop, Shiva Shem Ve'ever, for 14 years. Famous question of Yaakov Kamenetsky and his Sefer Amos Yaakov has. Why does, Yitzchak, why does Yaakov need to make a pit stop? He grows up in Yitzchak's house. His Rebbe is his father, Yitzchak. He doesn't have enough learning. He needs 14 more years. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky suggests as a gadol in America, very appropriately so, that Yaakov learned an entirely different type of learning. There's the Torah of the insular base medrash. There's the Torah about the spiritual purity and aspiration within the protected, secluded um, environment of, of purity of the base medrash. But now Yaakov was leaving that, that world of Yitzchak, his father, that insular, insulated world. Now he's going out into the world of Lavan. Who is best positioned to teach him about the world of Lavan? Shame the Aver. Two individuals who themselves lived during generations of corruption, who themselves had to navigate corrupt individuals. Yaakov didn't just go learn because he said, just give me 14 more years in Kolo before I have to go work. Yaakov's learning of those 14 years was preparing him for entering the workplace, the corrupt workplace of Lava. So anyway, what? Is he a slow learner? No, he's not a slow learner. It's a different type of learning, and it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, if you had to compete, if you had to survive in the in the place of Lavan, you'd need many. You and I would need many more than fourteen years. Yaakov, of course, has a dream. He rests his head. Beit El, Yerushalayim, the same place, two different places. Big discussion. The rocks, twelve rocks, they combine to become one. The idea of diversity and of unity. In fact, this was the parsha, the Shabbos that uh, after Rabbi Brander announced he was leaving and I was becoming a rabbi. This was my first drasha that I gave. What feels like many lifetimes ago, but actually that wasn't, wasn't that long ago. But uh, it was about this idea of diversity and unity. The, the stones which are separate but combine to become one to advance Yaakov's mission, the twelve sons, but who will function as one to advance the mission of the Jewish people. Yaakov awakes and he says, I didn't realize God's here. I mean, he didn't realize God's here. He learned all those years with Yitzchak. He learned 14 years with Shem Ve'ever. He's an incredibly righteous yeshiva bacher. He didn't realize God's there. What did he mean? So of course we explained, all the unfortunately explained, he didn't realize that the holy can be found in the mundane. He didn't realize the, that's what the ladder represented, the angels going up and down, the bridge between the, the heavens and the earth, that we don't escape. Judaism doesn't embrace a spirituality and holiness by abstinence, by asceticism. We believe in a holiness attained by immersing ourselves within the world, but doing so with distinction, kedusha, by being distinguished, by being distinct, 
by achieving holiness. Yaakov realizes that. That holiness is not by being reserved, insulated in the tent, the base Medrash. It's by embracing the world and bringing spirituality to the world. That's Yaakov's realization. Interesting Harabayas, we spoke about this a few years ago. Yaakov looks up, he calls it a bayas. Avram called it a har. Yitzchak called it a sada. Yaakov calls it kim, base elokim. Avram called it a mountain. Yitzchak called it a field. And Yaakov called it a house. We had that actually in the Daf Yomi recently, in the end of Pesachim. But uh, what's the difference between defining the same Makam HaMikdash, Harabais, the holiest spot on earth? What's the difference whether you approach it as a, as a mountain, as a field, or as a home? So we talked about it a few years ago. There's a number of different interpretations you could give, but one of them is the mountain you have to climb. And the field is open, and the home is, is closed. The different perspectives, maybe what they represent. Where is the place of greatest? Where is the place of greatest uh, growth? Is it like the mountain where you climb, where you ascend the shul? Is it the base medrash, the field, or is it for Yaakov the home? Einzek in base elokim. Anyway, we talked about all that in the past. So uh, Yaakov goes on. He lifts his feet and he starts setting out, and he finds the well. And we also spoke about in previous year. You can listen to all these classes on Yu Torah. But the well, it's not a coincidence, the prominent role of the wells within Sefer Bracious. What, what does the well represent? We spoke about the woman's role as the well, the wellspring. Um, but the prominent role of the well, Yaakov's relationship with the uh, shepherds, and he sees Rachel coming, he's so moved. You remember he has a criticism. <clears throat> this I think was last year we said, <clears throat> in Pasadena, page 148, when Yaakov's going to criticize them, what are you just sitting here and the well's covered? Don't you have a job to do? If the flock belongs to someone else, you owe it to them. If they're to yourself, Tzar Balechayim, don't you have to water them? But what word does he use before he rebukes them? Bayom Alem Yaakov, Achai, my brothers, Me'ayinatem, where are you from? Bayom Romecharan Anachdo, and then he says, Orayom Gadol, Loise Asefa Mekneh Hashkua Tzonu Luchuru'u. It's early in the day. Your work is not done. You owe it to your employers. You have to keep working. How did he get away with rebuking pure strangers? How did they not gang up, gang up and turn to him and say, Who are you? What are you talking Mind your own business. You're, you're criticizing us. You met us all 30 seconds ago and you're telling us how to do our business. Why did they accept his rebuke? Because how does he first introduce it? I think it was the Rashbam. I forgot who we saw last year. One of the Mepharshim. Achai, my brother. My brother's. First, Yaakov relates to them, takes an interest in them. Where are you from? Tell me about yourself. You're my brothers. I care about you. And only then is he in a position to be able to offer them constructive criticism. You can't offer constructive criticism. You can't make a withdrawal before you've made deposits. When you shower affection and love on your children or others, then you're in a position when you criticize for it to be accepted as in their best interest. But if you never shower affection or love, if you never invest in caring about them... And then you're going to make that withdrawal of criticism. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me what to do? So you learn a lot about, about outreach, about love, about parenting, about influence from the one word here that Yaakov turns to them and first says, Achai, my brothers, tell me about you. And only after learning about them, only then is in a position to rebuke them. Of course, Rachel comes, he embraces her, he has to revision. Rashi quotes that he, uh, he knows he's not going to be buried next to her. He's already mourning. He meets her. Before they're engaged, he's already crying about her funeral. And he realizes they're not going to spend eternity buried next to one another. And uh, 
Of course, I don't want to belabor this because I want to get to our Pesukim. But Yaakov go back, love on tricks, replaces Leah for Rachel. He works for all these, all these years for Rachel. Pasuk describes, It felt like a few days. It felt like a few days. When you're excited for something, it takes forever to happen. What do you mean it felt like a few days? So we've uh, described previously, when it's a labor of love, when, when you're excited for something that you love and it's a labor of love, then time passes quickly. Because you love not only the result, you love the process. In other words, love is the result of giving, not receiving. So every moment Yaakov worked in order to earn Rachel, he was increasing his love of her. If love is the result of giving, not getting, Rav Dessler's famous formula, Ava Hav means to give, not to take. Right? We've also elaborated on this uh, previously, two years ago in the Elul series, on uh, giving is getting. So love comes from giving, not from receiving. So every moment that Yaakov worked for Rachel to provide for her in order to earn her in marriage, her hand in marriage, was every moment a burden? Every moment was a privilege. Because every moment of sacrifice of work that he did increased his love for her. So I felt when every moment is increasing your love for the other person, when you're giving towards the other person, then it passes quickly. If it's all about you, selfishly, what you can get out of it, then it feels like it's taking forever. So for Yaakov, he was a selfless person, so in love that it felt like it flew by. It passed quickly. Of course, love and substitutes, Leah for Rachel. Rachel tries to save her older sister embarrassment and gives her the signs and the symbols. Leah has four children, gives them their names. Often this Pasha coincides with Thanksgiving. It's not a coincidence. Leah names Yehuda, Pamodeh, Hashem. The, Leah is the Gemara Barachos identifies Leah as the first to give gratitude to God. What does that mean? Leah is the first to give gratitude to God. Noach didn't bring a korban after the Mabul. Adam didn't bring a korban. Avram and Yitzchak didn't say thank you to the Almighty. Leah is the very first to say thank you to the Almighty. What does that possibly mean? We don't have time. We've spoken about that in the past too. But anyway, a lot of different interpretations. What does it mean? What is gratitude really all about that we describe Leah as having been the first to give gratitude? A real insight into, into gratitude. Rachel is miserable that she doesn't have children. She turns to Yaakov. She blames him. If I don't have children, I'm surely going to die. Barrenness, infertility is unbearably painful. Unbearably painful. That uh, Chazal teaches one of the... the um, maladies likened to death a person feels I have no continuity I have no future what's my purpose why am I even here Yaakov basically Yaakov Yaakov gets angry what am I the one why are you turning to me it's a very powerful image too I think about this every time someone invests in going to someone for a bracha there's nothing wrong with getting a bracha from a righteous individual even the bracha of an ordinary person shouldn't be taken lightly. Anybody who wishes well for another, it has tremendous power and potency. But when we go get a bracha from another, our bracha can't take the place of our um, human initiative to reach out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If we go to this Rebbe and think, oh, if he gives me a bracha, oh, then for sure I'm going to get what I want. He gave me this bracha. I went to a great Kabbalist after the birth of my fifth daughter. A great Kabbalist. I won't mention his name, but a, probably the most prominent Kabbalist today. It wasn't easy to schlep from Yerushalayim all the way up to go see him. In the freezing cold in a car with no heat, with the rain. Wait on a long line. I saw him. He said to me, I told him the story. I have five girls. I have, I have five girls. And I'm looking for a bracha, for a ben zacha, for a son. And he turned to me. He told me, your, your sixth child is a boy. 
So I said to him, is that a bracha or that's a haftacha? That's a bracha or that's a, a promise? That's a... He said, no, it's a promise. That's, I see, capitalistically, blah, 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 heebie-jeebie, you're having... So I, I walked out. It was the middle of the night in Israel, but it was the day in America, and I called Yechev, and I was singing and dancing down the street in the rain. I said, this is unbelievable. I have phenomenal news for you. It's incredible news. This is it. The next one's going to be a boy. She wasn't even pregnant at the time. The next one's going to be a boy. This is it. It's unbelievable. The moment found out that it was a girl, <laughs> number six, I will never forget the feeling of unbelievable stupidity. What was I doing putting faith in a bus or a dom, in a human being, flesh? God determines and decides our destiny. If we have a child, if they're a healthy child, what gender that child is, that I was singing and dancing and, 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 and hopping and bopping down the street, this is it because he made me this promise. Who is he to promise? In fact, as I reflected, that's a, that's a, that was a moment of idolatry. To, to, to place power on him to determine or to, to confidently tell me what I'm going to have is to steal it from the Almighty. That's idolatry. As I looked back, I felt so ashamed and so stupid and such, such a fool. What did you have to say? She told me all those things even before we knew it was a girl. <laughs> so, so anyway. So anyway, yeah, exactly. So anyway, but I realized. So, so I realized. You know, I'll tell you what, since we're on these funny stories, I'll tell you just quickly. Oh, we're, not, we're running out of time already. So the Dafyomi recently also told that Gemara uh, end of Pesachim, the 10th paragraph of Pesachim, that a uh, person is very blessed in uh, the world to come if they always make Havdalah on wine. What the Gemara means is that if you save uh, your wine, that you don't run out of it. You know, we live in a world of abundance. We all go to Costco, we've got 17, 50-gallon things of grape juice in our storage room. But once in a while, you didn't have enough wine or grape juice, and if a person didn't plan properly, they would run out for Havdalah. So the Gemara says, a person uh, gets great blessing if they leave wine for Havdalah. So once I went to another great rabbi, I won't mention, a great, not a Kabbalist, an incredible Tamachachim of our generation in Israel, a bracha for a Ben Zachar. So he said to me, what do you make Havdalah on? I said, grape juice. He said, make Havdalah on wine. If you make Havdalah on wine, you'll be Zochah, you'll merit to have a son. So I had Rav Shechter for a Shabbos once when he was here, and he made Havdalah in my home. So I said, use the wine, maybe through Shlichus. You know, the, the Segula works through a Shliach. Anyway, so someone was listening to the daf at the end of Sacham and emailed me, you got to listen to Rabbi Leibowitz's daf from Woodmere. The very prominent daf on Wai Torah. He tells a story about you. So I go listen to that. So he tells me the minute. I go listen to the minute where he quotes this Gemara about the wine. And he said, Rav Shechter told him the story. How, yeah, it's Talmud, Ephraim Goldberg, and Boca. After five sons, after four <laughs> sons, went to this great rabbi, he got the bracha, and Rav Shechter made the, great, the Havdalah on wine. And I was making Havdalah on wine. So this other rabbi who was a Talmud, a friend of mine, Arya Leibowitz, says, So what happened? He said, he had two more daughters. <laughs> and then he had a son. So anyway, so, but what's my point? Vayichar af Yaakov berachel. Rachel turns to Yaakov and says, Yes, I'm the God of Hador. Yes, I talk to a Kurdish Baruch regularly. Yes, I'm righteous. But why are you looking at me to provide you a child? You think I'm the Almighty? Am I the Ribono Shalom? Don't rely on my davening. Ask me to compliment your davening with a bracha. But don't rely on me. You can't outsource prayer. There's nothing more authentic than a person's personal prayer out of desperation, out of pleading with the Almighty. 
Yaakov turns to Rocha, Vayichar Av Yaakov Barocha, Tachas Elokim Anochi, Hashemona Mimech Privatan. You're turning to me? You're trying to outsource prayer? You're trying to outsource responsibility, human initiative? You're turning to me? I can't replace you. pray from the bottom of your heart. And then I'll compliment it. I'll add to it. So if you go to anyone for a bracha, get a bracha. It's lovely to get a bracha. But that bracha can never replace, can never measure up to an authentic parak of Tehillim, a Shemona Esrei, speaking to Hashem from your own heart, your own words. Nothing can ever replace that. So when people go and they, they give the, the kvittal and they give a little money and they get the bracha and they think, I'm done. I don't have to go to shul. I don't have to do chesed. I don't have to give stakah. I don't have to learn Torah. I don't have to be honest. I went to the Rebbe. I got the bracha. He promised me X, Y, or Z. That's not how it works. That's idolatry. That's to take away the power from Akash Baruch That's Yaakov's response to Rachel. Okay, we still haven't started yet. This is still the overview. So again, all the uh, last three children, Rachel finally gives birth to Yosef. It's time for Yaakov to leave. This is the part that we're going to study. He identifies it's time to leave. This employment contract, Lavan yet again tries to, uh, Lavan yet again tries to uh, deceive uh, Yaakov with his corruption. His new deceit is with the, uh, with the animals and the mating and which ones Yaakov will get versus which ones he'll get. Yaakov understands from Hashem that he can manipulate the system and indeed Yaakov becomes incredibly wealthy. With his new wealth and the recognition that he can't afford to stay any longer in this corrupt environment, he takes his children and his wives and his handmaid, what are they called? Uh, Shvachos, concubines, handmaidens, whatever they're called, and, uh, and he leaves. Lavan pursues and chases him. They have a confrontation. They have it out with words. At the end, they make a treaty between the two of them, and that's how our Parsha ends. Okay, so I want to study today Perak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 31, verse 1. Thank you for bearing with me with the long uh, overview, complete with its editorial comments. Page 160. Page 160 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Perak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, chapter 31, verse 1. And what's the context? Where are we here? Yaakov has become wealthy through uh, Lavan's uh, animals and uh, through the deal. And uh, he realizes it's time to go. Why does he realize it's time to go? What motivates? What incites Yaakov that it's time to get out? Because Yaakov overhears Lavan's son saying, Yaakov's stealing. He's taking everything of our fathers. And he, from that which belongs to our father, that's where all his wealth, that's where all of his wealth comes from. So look at the Mephoshim. Uh, what does it mean Yaakov overhears them? So first of all, now we're introduced to the fact that Lavan has sons. Ibn Ezra points out, Earlier it said, Banav, he had children, now we know he had sons. By the way, sons are going to get jealous. If a person has sons, and they see their brother-in-law becoming very wealthy and successful, and inheriting their father's business, they're going to get very jealous. And that's in fact exactly what happens here. So what did they do? Says the Svarno. Writes the Svarno. Often happens. They're jealous. And in their jealousy, they fabricate gossip about Yaakov. There's no truth to it. Yaakov is incredibly honest, which we'll talk about later. But rather than be able to pinpoint something actually wrong about Yaakov, their jealousy drives them to manufacture lies. Lashon Hara. 
And the Lashon Hara, as it often does, spreads until it becomes truth. It becomes confused with the truth. And what do they say? They say that he took everything that belongs to whom? To our father. What does that mean? They took the kavod. Look at the Rashbam. Otsem mamon. Right? He got this honor, he achieved all this kavod from my father. What's kavod for the sons of Lavan? Money. Honor and money are interchangeable. Where did Yaakov get this great uh, power, this great honor? Because of the money. Where did he get the money? He must be pilfering, he must be embezzling from our father. He must be skimming something off the top. Kliyakar understands a little bit differently. Look at the Kliyakar. First it says, Yaakov took from that which belongs to our father, and from our father he created this honor. From the verse it sounds like they're accusing him of two things, not one thing. He took that which belongs to our father, and from our father he established this honor. But it sounds like Me'asher, he took from our father, Lakach Yaakov is Kol Asher. So which is it? Asked the Kliyakar. The verse sounds like a contradiction. It's Asre Adadi. Lakach Yaakov is Kol Asher Lavinu. He took everything from our father, Umeasher Lavinu, and from that which our father has, which sounds like it's not everything. So which is it? Are they accusing Yaakov of taking everything or taking some things? How do you possibly spread a lie which is blatantly false? Yaakov didn't steal a penny. So if a person stole a little bit and you exaggerate, if a person acts shady, so you level an accusation, but Yaakov is squeaky clean. So how could they, prop, how could they possibly have promulgated this lie? And furthermore, Lavan maintained his wealth. Yaakov gained his wealth, how? From the return on Lavan's investments. In other words, the animals mated, and there were great, more animals, and that's where Yaakov got his animals from. But he didn't deplete the, the, the Karen, the, um, the principal. Thank you. He didn't deplete the principal from Lavan. Lavan kept his principal. Yaakov earned off the interest. So how could they say, he stole from our father? Coal, everything. These are the questions of the Kliyakar. Which again, I say this every class, we just read the Pasuk. Ah, nice Pasuk. Kliyakar read the Pasuk and sees ten questions. Contradiction and double language and so on and so forth. The truth is at first the sons were not talking about the material possessions at all. They're not talking about that Yaakov stole assets, property. What did Yaakov take? What's Lavan's hallmark? What's Lavan's signature practice? Deception. Deception. You know, you might, you might, deception is the derogatory way to call it. You know, today you'd say, he's a master negotiator. He's a master negotiator. Master negotiator means he takes advantage of everybody he talks to. Right? But you might say he's a master negotiator. So that was love and skill. And the sons are accusing Yaakov has to- taken that trade. Lavan was so good at it, he always had the upper hand. 
He always defeated his opponent, his adversary. He was so good at it, he walked away from every negotiation having taken advantage of the other. So here you have the student passing the teacher. Because when Lavan proposes to Yaakov this business deal about the mating of the animals, and Lavan thinks he's going to take advantage of Yaakov through it, who wins? Who defeats whom? Yaakov defeats Lavan. So the brothers witness that and they say to themselves, What? Did he just swindle our father at his own trick? Did he take advantage of our... Nobody beats our father in poker using a bluff. That's his move. What is that? Yaakov has taken this attribute, this trade, this skill, and he used it against our own father. And now when it comes to the assets, they say, yeah, from the assets he's taken as well. Because there he hadn't taken the principle, so he didn't take everything. Very interesting. So the Kliyakar sees that the brother's jealousy, I think this is also fascinating, the brother's jealousy stems not from a depletion of assets, but from Yaakov seeming to inherit this skill set, this reputation, this distinction of Ramos, of being a Ramai, of being able to deceive at worst or be a master negotiator at, at best. But in any case, they are, they are jealous. And this is what they accuse of. Vaya Yaakov is Pene Lavan, continuing. Yaakov sees the face of Lavan. So first Yaakov overhears the brother saying, Yaakov stealing from our father. He overhears this Lashonara, their jealousy. So what does he do? He takes a good look at Lavan's face. He looks into the eyes of his shver, of his father-in-law. And he sees, he's not with him the way he was yesterday and the day before. He sees he's no longer with him the way he was. What does it mean that he looked into his face? Says the Sforno, Vayar Yaakov is Pnei Lavan, Ra'ashikibel Esalashinhara. He sees that, in other words, he knows the brothers are gossiping. Siblings will gossip, sibling rivalry, but you hope that the parents are above it. You hope that the parents act responsibly, properly, that they try to dissipate and dispel the conflict rather than fueling it. Some parents are terrible, they fuel it, they side with one child over another, they thrive over the conflict. A proper parent makes sure to resolve it, make sure to, to, uh, to dissolve it. So Yaakov hears the brothers and he wants to know, is this their, their chatter, their gossip? How does their father, how does Lovin feel? And he takes one look at Yad Lovin's face and he realizes, that Lovin's in on this too. Lovin is accepting all of this gossip and is going to turn on him. So Hashem tells Yaakov, it's time to go back to your father's home. And you have nothing to fear. Don't worry about the journey. Don't worry about your brother Esau. Don't worry about going back home and re-entry. I'll be with you. So what does Yaakov do next? It's a tremendous lesson in Derech Eretz. Maybe it's obvious, but it's a great lesson in Derech Eretz. What does he do next? He goes to his wives for permission. Now, why is that an incredible lesson in Derech Eretz? Did he really have a choice? Who just told him to go back home? The Almighty, the Rebono Shalom. If God tells you it's time to go home, you don't exactly go ask permission. You tell, you instruct your wives, God came to me, gave me a message, it's time. Instead, he turns to them for buy-in. It's a very powerful lesson about marriage. You know, the Gemara tells in a few places about great rabbinic leaders. The Rebbe Lozabin Azariah, when he is appointed to be the 
the, the Nasi, the Gemara tells, before he's willing to accept the position, who does he go talk to? His wife. Why? Because this is a position with tremendous time constraints. This is a position which will make him much more inaccessible to his children, to his wife. He's not entitled to run and say, absolutely! You know, you don't accept the, the award, the honor, the dinner, the position, the without speaking to the person whom it's going to impact greatly. So what happens? Yaakov goes and he calls to Rachel and Leah. And where does he confer with them? In the field. Why in the field? Privacy. Privacy. The Gemara actually learns from here that praiseworthy are those, actually praises, I think it's the Persians, Parsim. It's the Gemara and Baruch, those who remember the daft back from then, who always go for Eitzah, who go for advice and share in the field. Maybe he was still working for Loha, he didn't want to take the time off, he did it in the field, so he could continue watching. Oh, maybe it was not to steal time from his boss, okay. But uh, more likely because, uh, because of privacy, he wants to make sure that he's not overheard. Not overheard. What is, uh, what is uh, look at Rashi and Pasa Gimel. God tells him it's time to go home and I'll be with you. Why does God want him to go home? V'sham eye imach, I'll be with you there. What do you mean there? Ava mechuba latame As long as you stay here, says God, I can't hang out with you here. Why? No matter how good you are, if you're in a corrupt environment, there's no room for me. Another powerful lesson. Even the most pure person, the most righteous person, but if they're in an impure environment, there's not going to be godliness, spirituality. There's not going to be, God can't be found, so God says to Yaakov, get out of there, and I can be with you elsewhere, but I can't be with you there. So he calls Rachel and Leah Rashi, Now, again, notice how Rashi was bothered. None of us were. None of us were bothered. Why Rachel first? Leah's older. Leah's his first wife. Why Rachel first? Shehi haisa akeres habayis. Because why is Yaakov even tied to Lavan to begin with? Because at the well, who did he meet? It wasn't Leah. Remember her eyes didn't allow her to go to the well. The sunlight would have bothered her. Or she was too old and the men would have consorted with her. We saw in last week's parasha. In the beginning of the parasha rather. So why? He, he's only tied to, he's only connected to Lavan to begin with because of Rachel. So therefore he speaks to her first. Even Leah's own children later, right, Yehuda, who's from Leah, Boaz is from Yehuda, so even they later, when they reference Rachel and Leah in the book of Rus, who comes first? Rachel. So even Leah's own children later acknowledge that Rachel is the primary wife or the primary tie of Yaakov to that family, and they therefore honor her by mentioning her, by mentioning her first. Okay, let's keep going. So he tells to Rachel, "I saw the face of your father. He's no longer with me. I don't have his loyalty." The God of my father was with me. It seems like a non sequitur. What does one thing have to do with the other? I looked at your father's face, and he's not with me anymore. And the God of my father is with me. What does that mean? Not afraid anymore. So look at the Rashbam. I looked in your father's face and he's angry at me, but I want you to know I didn't earn any of that anger. 
Because everything I did was honest. God was with me. And my success is the result of God's blessing. And therefore, though I see in your father's face his anger and his accusations, they're false. In other words, why does he do that? Rachel and I turn to him and say, well, well, why is our father angry at you? We love our father. If he's angry at you, maybe he has good reason. Yaakov is bevorning. He's anticipating that, that uh, suspicion. And he says, no, your father does not have a legitimate reason to be angry. The Lord of my father was with me. Everything I've done is honest. Everything you're living off of, I haven't stolen a penny from your father. So I'm telling you that I see in his face, he's got all kinds of accusations of me, but know that I'm squeaky clean. Yes, sir. Hashem was the one who's telling him to leave. He doesn't say it at all. So maybe this is where it's actually coming out. Because this is that this is the message. It, it, he talks about the fact that the tone and the and that love and. Well, I think the very last pasuk. Let's see. Hold, hold that thought. Hold the thought, and we'll come back to it. You both know that with all of my effort, which we'll we'll see soon also what this means a little bit more but he says with all of my effort I have worked for your father while I've given your father my full effort I've been a very fair employee I've done everything I can your father's changed the deal countless times your father mocked me and he changed my deal he changed my deal what is that? we had a deal we have a contract and your father changed it a hundred times. But you know what happened? Despite his efforts to undermine me, God did not allow him. Now when Yaakov tells his wives, your father changed it a hundred times, is he exaggerating? Was it a hundred times? This is the man of truth. Is it appropriate for the man of truth to employ an exaggeration to make a point? What's going on? So says the Rashbam, Aseris eno dafka. Yeah, it wasn't, he didn't mean your father changed the deal with me a um, hundred times. It's a guzma. Meant many times, right? You know, you'll see someone, you'll say, you know, have you ever met him? I met him a million times already. A million times you met him. You know, all you'd have to be to have met somebody a million times. Uh, it's an exaggeration to say how often it occurred. So the Rashbam understands Yaakov is employing a legitimate exaggeration to say, your father's changed my ordeal a hundred times. Not literally a hundred times, but it's an exaggeration to show how corrupt the father is. The Ramban disagrees. Says the Ramban, a very important principle for studying Chumash altogether, Zehaya Emes. Yes, a hundred times Yaakov came. First your stock options, then no stock options, $25 an hour, then $10 an hour. First is this many hours a day. Then that includes lunch, doesn't include lunch. Health benefits, no health, dental, no dental. He changed it a hundred times. Mizayah MS. A hundred times. Says the Ramban, a very important principle. Often the Torah doesn't tell you every detail. It might make reference in one place to details that it omits elsewhere. It doesn't mean they didn't happen, but the Torah is not a history book. Torah is not a history book, and therefore it doesn't record every detail. So says the Ramban, yeah, Lavan switched the deal a hundred times. Uh, we didn't see that. But it did happen, but 
Torah doesn't record every single detail. Imko Yomar, continuing Pasuk Ches. Imko Yomar Nikudim Yescharecha V'yadukohatzon Nikudim. Imko Yomar Akudim Yescharecha V'yadukohatzon Akudim. So how did God protect me despite your corrupt father? Because if Lavan said the speckled ones, the 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 speckled offspring, those are your, that's yours, uh, your payment. So you know what Akash Baruch did? He made everything be speckled. And if he said the ringed ones, those are yours, ones with rings around them, so then he made them all born that way. What did God do? He took away your father's livestock and he gave them to me. But he didn't take away the principle. What he means by taking away is the prophet. All of the children, God fashioned them that they met the stipulation that would favor, that would benefit me. So what happens is Yaakov, it once happened that while these animals were mating, Right? And Yaakov, remember, put the reflection in the water to help um, stack the deck. Right? He, he turned the odds in his favor. So once I looked up, I once looked up and, um, and I saw, I raised my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that were on the flock were ringed, speckled, and checkered. I looked up and the angel called out to me, Yaakov, and I said, Here I am. And the angel said, Look at all these animals, speckled, ringed, and so on. I see everything Lovan's doing to you. This is all Yaakov talking to Rachel and Leah. I, the God of Beit El, it's funny the angels identifying himself as I, the God, so the Mepharshim deal with it and say he's not misrepresenting, but he's there as the ambassador of God, so he's the mouthpiece for God. Remember the, the monument that you placed when you made an oath at the beginning of the Parsha? What happens when Yaakov wakes up from his dream at the very beginning of the Parsha? He wakes up and he takes an oath. If God will be with me, we discussed this two years ago with source sheets online. If he takes care of me, gives me what to eat, clothing, and returns me peacefully to my father's home, then he'll be my God. Then which we talked about two years ago at length. Really? We're in a position to make deals with God? God, you make things fall out the way exactly I want them, then you're my God. If things aren't exactly the way I want it, I don't win the lottery, I don't get what I want, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to negotiate again. What's Yaakov doing with this neder? Is it appropriate to take an oath? So we talked about that two years ago and a lot of, a lot of uh, Makoros, a lot of sources in the source sheet. So here are the angels reminding Yaakov of the oath. Remember the promise that you took? Asher nadarta lisham neder. You made a promise? Well, it's time. Taking care of you, you've got clothing, you've got food. You've got material success and wealth. It's time to come home. Batan Rachel So now that was the end of his. That was the end of his report. Right. That's the end of his monologue. Rachel I've worked hard. I've been honest. Your father changed the deal a hundred times. I've been successful. The angel called out to me. I looked up. He said, "No, it's time to go. Get a ticket." Batan Rachel So Rachel and Leah answer him. But before they do, let's just see some of the mafreshim for a brief moment. The uh, Rashi. Let's see Rashi, the classic. Asher nadartali, the middle of Yud Gimel, tzorech atal l'shalmo, shamarti yebeis alokim shetakriv sham korbanos. The angel told Yaakov, it's payday. You made a promise 
that you were going to give to God, offer sacrifices, if He was good to you. Well, He's been good to you. It's now payday. It's time to pay up. It's time to pay up. Anochi hakel beit el, the Ramban. Yisapar Yaakov l'anoshev kol ma'asho amal ha'amalach elokin b'chalom. Yaakov is relating to his wife's wives all that he heard in his dream. Ki akol pius lahem shetelachna imo. Everything he is using is to encourage them, to appease them, to persuade them, it's time to leave. It's not easy to get a girl to leave her parents' home. It's not easy, even if her father's lover. Often people are very connected to their, to their roots. So he's trying to employ all the arguments he can, all the persuasion he can, to get them to leave. But says the Ramban, it's important to be aware that what Yaakov is telling them is not part of one dream. He combines two separate dreams. This episode with the flock, with the angel, lift your eyes, see the speckled and the, and the, uh, the different spotted sheep. When did that happen? In the first years that Yaakov was working for Lavan. And when he said, I'm the God of your father, it's time to pay off your neder, your oath. When was that? In the latter years, in the end of his time with Lavan. And so on and so forth. So therefore, it says the Ramban, it's important to remember that while Yaakov relays this as one combined dream, they happened years apart. Years apart. Yaakov is just combining them because he's trying to be persuasive in earning, in earning uh, the consent of his wives to go with him. Look at the next Ramban. You promise to serve God? Not anywhere. Don't say, ah, I could stay here. Uh, you know, you're on Shlichut to Boka for two years. But God, I could be religious here. I don't have to go back to Israel. No. You made a promise. You're coming back to Israel. In the land. Hamiyuchad. That's chosen. Hanivcharta. And to be a Evan Besa Elokim, the stone monument when you woke up, those stones that you laid your head on, the monument that you created, you made a promise. There to give your tithe, to give a portion of all of your success, your wealth, your income. And if you delay, God will get angry at you. So it's not, you could read this passage that you could stay or you could go, but God's telling you that if you go, He'll take care of you. Don't be afraid. The Ramban is saying, no, 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 no. This is God saying, you don't have a choice. God's going to get angry. You made a deal. You're here temporarily. It's time to go. God has paid up his, his end. It's time for you to pay up your end. Now Rachel and Leah turn back to Yaakov and say, Why should we stay? Is there anything keeping us here? Is there anything keeping us here? There's nothing keeping us here. We have no share in the inheritance of our fathers. We're strangers to him. He sold us. He's consumed all of our money. All of the wealth that God has, has protected for our fathers, for us. So therefore, Yaakov, hubby, whatever God told you, we're in. We're with you. We're ready to leave. There's nothing keeping us here. What does it mean when they say, we're like strangers, nachrios? 
Rashi says, "Afilu b'shosh aderek bnei adam l'aseis n'dunya l'bnosav b'shas n'suun nahagi mano kenachrios kemacharnu l'chab b'schara peula." So you know what? We've been harboring this resentment at our father since our wedding day. Normally, what happens? Not today, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it. But an adunya, a dowry, was offered. A young couple got married, and the girl's parents gave a dowry. There was a stipend they gave their son-in-law for them to begin their marriage, to buy an apartment, take care of them for a year to learn in Kailul, to help them out in the beginning while they're finishing graduate school. There, maybe it does happen today. There was a more than a dowry. There was a there was a dowry provided. Says says uh, say Rachel and Leah to Yaakov. Rather than our father giving you a dowry, you had to pay him for us. Nimkai, we're nachriyosei. We're like strangers. We're his daughters. He should have given you a dowry for marrying us. And rather than support you, what did you do? You had to work. You supported him. You made a payment to him. So therefore, there's nothing keeping us here. He's treated us like strangers from day one. The uh, Orachayim Hakadosh is bothered. They say. What's the difference between a chelak and nachala? Kaflu lomar chelak v'nachala lirmos beis dvarim. Two things. Look at the Rachaim on your own time. We don't have time, but notice again the sensitivity to the text. What were Rachel and Leah saying? We have neither a chelak, a portion, nor a nachala or an inheritance. What's the difference between the chelak and nachala? But let's keep going. Yaakov takes his sons and his wives on the camels. It's time to get out of there. Rashi points out that later Esav says, Who does Yaakov first take? His wives, then his children. Yaakov first takes his children, then his wives. Because for Esav, his children are an annoying burden. Really, he got married because he wanted the women. Ah, they're children? Now he has to deal with children. Yaakov... Not that the wives are the annoying ones, but for Yaakov, he got married to have children. Continuity. That's his future. Of course, he's loyal. Of course, he loves his wives. But therefore, the bonav come first. As bonav as nashav. He takes everything in order to make his way to his father, his home, towards Canaan. Is out of the house shearing his sheep, and Rachel independently, autonomously, without telling anybody, steals his truffin. Why? Why? Why'd she take the truffin? So says Rashi in the famous comment, because on the way out she wanted to do a, a good chesed for her father, so she tried to take away his avodazar, bless you. So on the way out she steals his idols so that he cannot worship them. On the way out, she takes the idols. Why? Because she, he could replace them, but it'll take some time. So she's buying some time for her father to not worship idols. The Rashbam has a different interpretation. Or look at the Ibn Ezra, rather. Ibn Ezra, in a long statement here, says that, the Ibn Ezra says that the Trafim were some astrological vehicle that Lovum would use to tap into astrological insight. So Rachel took them, not she could care less her father's an idolater, that's his problem. She took them because it's a GPS system. And if she leaves this GPS system, her father's going to find her. So on the way out, she smashes her father's GPS system so that he won't be able to pursue them and catch up to them. 
That's the Ibn Ezra's interpretation. Rashbam gives another interpretation. The Rashbam's third interpretation is so they will not tell Lavan that Yaakov wanted to run. Almost ascribing a power to the Trafim. Almost as if there's supernatural, there's idolatry that Rachel didn't want the Trafim to reveal where they went, so she smashes them. Or she takes them. So, so three interpretations. Rashi, she didn't want her father to worship idols. The Ibn Ezra, it functioned as a GPS. She didn't want Lavan to know where they went. Or the Rashbam, she didn't want the Trafim somehow to indicate, uh, to communicate to Lavan where they went. So she takes them. Vayignov Yaakov is lave Lavan Ha'arami. Yaakov stole the heart of Lavan, the Aramean. I really want to share with you this Rambam, we're out of time. But all of these things are so significant. What does it mean Yaakov stole the heart of Lavan? And Lavan here, whose name has been used over and over again, now is already identified as Lavan Harami. But why does it say? So the Sforno says, In what way did Yaakov steal the heart of Lavan? He gave him no indication that he was on to Lavan and that he'd be leaving the house. Normally, if you learn that somebody's uh, hostile to you, you reciprocate that hostility. Yavan, Yavan, Yaakov um, practiced love and affection towards Lavan even when he no longer felt it. So in that way, he stole the heart of Lavan, says the Svarno. The Arami. What's the Arami, says Svarno? Why did he steal the heart of Lavan? Had he revealed to Lavan that he was on to him, Lavan, the Arami, the Arami, and the trickster would have somehow outsmarted him and prevented him from leaving and taking advantage of him. Next passage, Oh, so much more to talk about. So he runs and he passes the river and it's told to love him on the third day so he chases after him. He travels seven days. Lavan has a dream in which God comes to him and says, Hey Lavan, quit it. Do not do anything negative to Yaakov. Now this is bizarre. The Ramban is bothered by it, as I'm sure you were. Lavan, the nefarious, wicked, low-life Oisvar of Lavan, merits prophecy, God talking to him? What, are you kidding me? Says the Ramban, yes. Why? Because to protect a righteous person, God will even speak to a wicked one. God will lower himself to reveal himself even to a Lavan if it will contribute to the protection of a Yaakov. Vayasag Lavan is Yaakov, Yaakov takas ola bahar. Lavan catches up to Yaakov. Lavan confronts Yaakov. Why did you steal my heart? And you took my daughters. I didn't even get a chance to give them a hug or a kiss. You can't help but feel a little sympathy for Lavan. I couldn't give a hug and a kiss to my grandchildren. You left in the middle of the night. You took them away from me. This is my family. What did you do? So Yaakov answers, I was fearful you were going to falsely accuse me. We have this whole conversation. This could be five hours spent on what was Lavan saying. How was he manipulating the facts to, to put a guilt trip on Yaakov and to make Yaakov look like a bad guy? And how did Yaakov respond point by point to deflect it all back to back to uh, Lavan as he deserves? But we only have one minute left. So instead I want to just end by sharing with you this incredible Rambam. So what happens... But yet, we just read the Pasuk, 
that Hashem visits Lavan in a dream, warns him, don't mess, hands off Yaakov, hands off, Yaakov is untouchable. So the Medrash, not quoted by these Mephoshim, but the Medrash wonders, in what merit did Yaakov deserve divine protection? I mean, this is huge, as the Ramban said. God comes to Lavan, of all people, and talks to Lavan. Why? So in what merit wonders the Medrash? So, um, was it the fact that Yaakov is an Ishtam Yoshev Olim? He's a Yeshiva Bachar, diligently spends every waking moment studying Torah. Was his steadfast commitment to observing Torah? What do we know about Yaakov while he's with Lavan? Im Lavan Garti, Mitzvah Shamarti. I lived with Lavan the low life, but I never compromised observing Halacha, even an iota. Was it, as the succeeding Psukim implied, the Schusavos, the merit of his father? Was it the Chesed that he did? Was it the depth and profundity of his prayer? Why did Yaakov merit this divine protection? So many reasons we could give. But the Tanchuma gives one that you would never guess. Listen to the Tanchuma. Mikan anu You know why Yaakov merited the divine protection? Honesty, integrity, professionalism, diligence, work ethic, being a proper worker, fulfilling your obligation professionally brings rewards greater than can be achieved through the merit of our forefathers. The Tanchuma says, an honest worker. Yaakov didn't cut corners. He didn't steal pencils. He didn't take a nap on the job. He didn't surf the web, go look at his Facebook page every five minutes. He didn't distort his hours and his billing. Yaakov is admired and praised and the Medrash says he earns divine protection Forget the chesed and the prayer and Avram and Yitzchak. Forget Tariq Mitzvah Shamarti. Forget Ishtam Yoshev Olam. None of that earned it. You know what earned it? He didn't take home the supplies. He worked every minute. He billed honestly. It's incredible. It's an absolute incredible insight. So usually, you know, we think of our great, our great uh, forefathers as having the title of having the title um, at Sadiq. Avram is Avram Avinu. Moshe is Moshe Rabbeinu. David is David HaMelech. If I said, who has the title Hatzadik? Who is the righteous one? Usually it's Yosef. Usually it's Yosef. But we find one place where Yaakov is called Yaakov Hatzadik. In the Rambam Silchos Chirus, the laws of wages, Perak Yud Gimel Halacha Zayin. Silchos Chirus, Perak Yud Gimel Halacha Zayin. So the Rambam writes, "Kederach shemuzar balabayish loyigzos char ani v'lo yakvenu." Just as the employer is obligated to pay the wages to the employee, not to steal from him, "Hinei ani muzar shloyigzos malachas balabayis v'yivatel maat bekan maat makan umotzi kol ayom b'mirma." So too, the employee is forbidden from cutting corners take a few minutes to himself here, a few minutes over there, a personal phone call here, Facebook over there, and in the end he will have stolen from the boss. One has to be so careful with the time that they owe their employer, such that we cut benching short. God says you say an abridged form of benching if you're eating at work, because you can't take time from your boss. One has to work 
with all their might, all their effort. You can't mail it in. You can't be lazy. You got to work with all your effort. Shara Yaakov Hatzadik Amar ki bekol kochi avarati esavichem lefichach natos char zos av paolam azesh nemar leifrotz ish maod maod. So the Rambam at the very end of Hilchos Chiros, the end of Perek Gimel says, "What is Yaakov called? What does Rambam call Yaakov? Yaakov Hatzadik." And why is Yaakov called Sadik? Because he worked Bekokoho. He didn't cut corners, he didn't steal a penny, he didn't make a personal phone call, didn't stand around by the water cooler. He worked with all of his wealth, and that's why he merited the tremendous wealth, and that's why he merited the divine, the divine protection that he got. So a lot more to say about this, but I think it's a great lesson in work ethic and honesty and integrity, that of all of the praises we can bestow upon Yaakov, this is the one the Rambam highlights, this is the one the Medrash says earns him, and this is something that I think we need to remind ourselves of often, the obligation to our employees. And if you, want to, if you want to attribute it metaphorically, you could say the obligation to Hashem. Hashem is our great boss. He pays us in the wage of life. He gives us the ability to be alive. And in that position, we owe Him to make the best use of every moment of our day. Have a great week.